Our message is entitled this morning, Hope During Dark Days. We'll consider some things that are going on in our day, and then we're going to look at two different kinds of people, those who have temporal hope, in other words, they're looking for everything you're going to get out of life right in the here and now, and those who have eternal hope, and then we'll consider the biblical description of cultural decadence in the days of some of these men that we mentioned in our reading. Now this morning we see that dark days have come in God's creation. Here's the way Eugene Peterson describes it in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning till night. We see something of the same trend in our nation today as the foundations are being destroyed. Same-sex marriages have been approved by popular vote in nine states. Two states have voted to legalize marijuana for recreational use. Four out of ten children are born out of wedlock. The toll of murder of unborn children has reached 55 million. Gunmen show up all over the place and shoot everybody in sight. And it seems from a distance that even the Super Bowl this year is all about gay rights and the assurance that players should feel welcome to come out of the closet and exercise their gay pride. Well, the good news is that even in the midst of dark days, there is always a remnant of God's people who have their hope in Him. And they do have a strong hope for the future, and that enables them to stand against the inundation of culture that is moving toward the wickedness that we see described back in Genesis. The basis for God's hope is given in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The rest of the good news is that God has a purpose for our lives as we face difficult times, whether individually or in our families or corporately as a nation. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, the gold which perishes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we see that God has a purpose in trials. It's like the goldsmith who puts that gold in the refiner's fire and turns up the heat and burns off the impurities so he gets down to the pure product. And that's what God wants to do for us 
And as we face challenging times and we face them with faith, that's exactly what happens in our lives. Now back to Genesis and the dark days in God's creation. The first verse of chapter 5 in Genesis designates one of the major divisions in the book. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him. Instead of this is the account that we see in Genesis 2-4, we now have this is the book of the account. We can't say for certain, but it may be that Adam wrote down Genesis 2, 3, and 4, and that he gave his signature to this. And it could be that Moses, in his book, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, took this written record and incorporated that into what he was writing. We don't know for sure about that, but we do see that there was a book at that time, the book of the generations of Adam. Now we come to those who are looking at the here and now and counting on temporal hope for the future. These would be people who are not looking for God's Redeemer, but they're looking for things here on this earth to carry the day. In the last lesson, we saw some of the earthly accomplishments of the descendants of Cain. There was murder, you remember, uh, Lamech, one of the Cainites boasting about his murder, and perhaps that was self-defense. But there were other things, animal husbandry, music and musical instruments, the science of metallurgy that were developed. And so, like the progenitor of that line, Cain, nobody was calling upon the name of the Lord. It seemed that men were interested in what's going on on the earth, and humanism and what man can do. Now, there's nothing wrong with inventing things and making life better, but when God is left out of that, it's coming to a bad end, as we will see. Their philosophy likely was, when you're dead, you're done. So you better grab for all the gusto you can and have a blast while you last. Live fast, love hard, die young, and leave a beautiful memory. Perhaps that was something of their philosophy. That's a temporal hope. I don't know about the die young part. That might be a modern twist because those guys before the flood seemed to live forever. 969 years for Methuselah, that's almost a millennium. You could see where death is merciful in a sense. Suppose you had been born a thousand years ago and you were still kicking, thinking all the th of all the things you had lived through by this time. Now that brings the question, why did people live so long before the flood? We don't know the answer to that, but we might surmise that sin had not yet taken its toll on the bodies of mankind. It seemed that the earth was more suited to long life before the flood than after. And it may have been that God just supernaturally preserved men so that they could be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth as he told them to do back in the first chapter of Genesis and verse 28. This kind of temporal worldview is prevalent today in our culture, in government, 
in the lives of individuals. We are inundated with the imperative of the here and now. And no one thinks much about tomorrow or the compound interest on the debt that's going to be due tomorrow. We're just living for today. Now, we're warned against that kind of hope in Scripture. And we want to take a moment to pay attention to God's warning in Matthew 6. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Now you see, you can have great wealth. Abraham did. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament did. But if you're married up to your money, as was the case of Zacchaeus before he was converted, then that's going to bring some serious problems for you. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 12. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Timothy is given a warning through the Apostle Paul. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And skipping on down in that passage, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, here's the key right here. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that counts for now and that counts for then. Now, how would you know if you have made material goods and money the treasure of your heart? Well, Christ tells us in his interaction with the rich young ruler. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Here's the remedy. Giving in Jesus' name to others who are in need. If God has given you the stewardship responsibility of a generous share of earthly possessions, purpose to become a great giver for Christ's sake and keep your heart in the right place. Now, I don't think Christ is saying to us to give away everything that we have. The Good Samaritan uh, had a means of personal transportation. He had a pretty good reputation. He had money to pay the innkeeper. He had the oil and wine for medicinal purposes. So I don't think God is calling upon us necessarily to sell out of everything and give it to the poor. But if that's where my heart is, that's going to be the remedy. Let's purpose to be great givers. 
Now we're looking at a different group of people, those who have eternal hope. In contrast with the descendants of Cain, we come to Seth's line. And some of them gave indication of a very different value system. We see men walking with God, having been reconciled to Him. We hear folks calling upon the name of the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of Faith, chapter 11, we see that men were beginning to exercise faith. What would have been some of the achievements, not only for this earthly life, but also for eternity, for some of the people from Seth's line? Here in Genesis 4.26, we see to Seth was a son born, and his name was called Enosh, Enos in the Greek. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's like men were not calling upon the name of the Lord, but now they're coming back to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you think they knew what happened in the, in the Garden of Eden? I'm quite sure they did. I'm quite sure they looked in Adam's book or maybe oral tradition, whatever they had, and they understood what the problem was. But was there any hope? Did anybody have any hope that the seed of woman was going to come and deal a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent, to the, to the serpent, excuse me. Well, some people begin to move back toward that hope. Cain's descendant Lamech, seventh generation from Cain in Adam's line, uh, you remember, uh, he was a guy who bragged about his murdering another fella, killing another fella. Well, also in the seventh generation, in Seth's line, we have a man named Enoch. And we know some things about Enoch, even from the New Testament. About this time, God appears on the scene, in a sense, not his appearance of manifestation of God himself, but of his power and of his merciful forgiveness. And we see something very unusual happening here. Genesis 5:22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Do you think maybe Methuselah was a problem child, and he just saw his need to get back in touch with the Lord? Well, I don't know about that. But all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with the Lord, and he was not, for God took him. What? does that mean? There's some light shed on it in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, by faith Enoch was taken up that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If we omit the murder of Abel, the first death recorded from the time of the beginning till we get to the translation of Enoch was that of the man who brought sin and death into the world, Adam himself. But a little more than half century, a half century after Adam's death, Enoch is ushered into the presence of the Lord without leaving the body. And I presume that a lot of people witnessed that. And people understood 
here is the reward of a life well lived. Now, we probably won't be departing the earth that way ourselves. Elijah was the only other man who did. But it's a record of God bringing one into his presence as a result of his having turned to him and walked with him. Power over death. But there's another fellow with whom we're familiar. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generation, the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And again from the New Testament, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now this might be a good time to remind ourselves that everyone who has ever been saved was saved by grace through faith. And that includes the Old Testament believers, many of whom are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Nobody was ever saved by bringing a sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, Psalm 51, 16 and 17. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. Galatians 2, 16. Not a single person was ever saved by doing good works. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Salvation is a gracious gift that God gives and it's received by faith. That's the reason Scripture says salvation is of the Lord. So everyone, just like Noah, must find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now let's ask ourselves the question, how are these guys able to maintain such a good testimony in very dark days, the days in which they live, where wickedness was rampant on the earth? Well, here's the answer. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. They were convinced of things that would happen in the future when they couldn't see how. Can you imagine how the universe is going to be destroyed by fire? That's hard for me to imagine, but that is what's coming according to the Scripture. Can you imagine just being caught up together in the clouds with Him to meet the Lord in the air? How's that going to happen? What's going to happen to gravity at that time? Well, it's not going to be gravity. It's going to be those who have put their faith and trust in God. Something is going to be happening to them. We believe certain things about the future, even when we die and are buried, that we can't see. And maybe we can't see how, according to modern science or according to man's explanation. But that would be faith. What does this term, walk with God, what does that mean? I think it means basically the same thing as the New Testament term, walking in the Spirit. It just means that you have an intimate relationship with God. And your behavior and your deportment and the course of life that you're following is one that is pleasing to Him. We are walking in His way, as we talked about in our Scripture verse this morning. The way of the Lord. And as we walk in that way, 
and we are pleasing as we behave in that way, it could be said that we are walking with Him. We're walking in the Spirit. We're not doing anything to quench the Spirit. If we do, we ask forgiveness for it. We're not doing anything to grieve the Spirit. We are seeking to please the Spirit. So I don't follow my old flesh, but I follow the urging of the Spirit that is within me, God's Spirit who dwells within me. So we see in those verses, chapter 4, verse 26, uh, chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, 6, 9, that the lives of some of Seth's dependents, descendants were directed toward God and directed toward serving Him. They were looking for the things of God. They had an eternal hope that the day was coming when they would be accepted into His kingdom. Maybe not caught up as Enoch was, but there would be an everlasting inheritance that would never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for them. Now, in spite of that fact, it was good they had that understanding because something happened to every one of those men, and it's pointed out. Chapter 5, verse 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, 31, in spite of their long lives, they all finally died. And then that faith and hope became sight. You won't have to have hope when you're in heaven. You won't have to have exer to exercise faith when you're in heaven. All that's going on now. So we want to exercise that faith for all we're worth because it's only going to last for a relatively short period of time. And then faith becomes sight. And there's God. And there are all the people who have put their faith and trust in Him. Well, these were difficult days in God's creation. Do you want to know what was happening in the land in the seventh generation from Adam? The Scriptures tell us precisely. I don't look at it much from this source, but there it is in the book of Jude. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, that's our Enoch we're talking about, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes, or is coming, with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. What do you think is going on in this day? Could you guess ungodliness? That's what it looks like. He's just hammering away at these guys because the intentions of their heart now are only wicked continually. Evil, 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 morning to night. I don't know here if he's talking about the flood or about the fire, but there is more. What began to happen on the earth about the time of the birth of Noah's three sons? Men began to multiply on the land and daughters were born to them. Well, hallelujah. What did some of the sons of God then do? Look in your Bible in Genesis 6 and verse 2. They began to marry some of the daughters of men. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Some translations say fair. Others say attractive. 
but the Hebrew word really means beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. What's going on here? And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now we learned in Bible study this week, and by the way, I was encouraged, we had almost a hundred people in Bible study this past week down at the Clarks and at our house on Tuesday night, and we would invite you to come to the Willings this coming Thursday night or at our house uh, on Tuesday night. But here's what we learn. We learn that every passage has one intended meaning, but many applications. Now, I can assure you there are great differences of opinion with regard to the meaning of this passage. Some say it's an invasion of fallen angels who cohabited with human women and produced a race of giants. That sounds kind of like the ancient astronauts, doesn't it? Von Dannigan's chariots of the gods. Well, it's an interesting theory, but it does have some problems, not the least of which is the union of these spirit beings with flesh and blood humans. If such unions did occur, how could there be offspring? And why would they be giants? And how did these giants survive the flood? Because the Nephilim, the fallen ones, were still around when Joshua was conquering the promised land. Did more fallen angels come down and cohabit with human women? Then another view says that these were demonically controlled men and women who became giants and powerful tyrants ruling the earth, the Nephilim. I think I would agree with a much more simple explanation. The sons of God, the godly line of Seth, began to intermarry with the daughters of men, the ungodly line of Cain. They were enticed to mix with these daughters and thereby compromise their faith and devotion to God. And so in God's eyes, they were the fallen ones. But men saw them just like today as mighty leaders, men of renown. It didn't matter about anybody's commitment to the Lord. It's just uh, what they were able to accomplish in this life. Warren Wiersbe reminds us that the same temptation is looking right down the barrel at us today. Be friendly with the world, James 4, 4. Love the world, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Be conformed to the world rather than be separated from the world. Romans 12, 2. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Of course, this could lead to being condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 32. Lot was a man who experienced this danger as he decided to set his tents over near Sodom. And you know what happened to his family. And then uh, he escaped but it was a rough day. So much for the one intended meaning. I'm not certain exactly which it would be. I have my ideas. But I can tell you precisely what the application is, and that would be wrongful marriage. Wrongful marriage. One of Satan's most successful devices is compromise. Young people don't let the enemy try to fool you by saying what he did to Eve, that you're missing out on something. God is withholding something good for you. 
uh, it's a privilege to be separated from sin and to be in fellowship with God. I don't care what you might be missing, what event or what party. That is a great privilege. Don't let the enemy tell you that you're missing out on something without which life is going to be complete. Think of the times in Scripture, a life is going to be incomplete. Think of the times in Scripture when the enemy caused God's people to compromise. In Moab, in the days of Balaam and his talking donkey, you remember. And then when the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan and they were going in. Joshua's generation died and the new generation didn't know the Lord or the things that he had done for them and they got caught up with intermarrying into the Canaanite uh, tribes. Later the prophets warned Israel, don't intermarry with these idolatrous pagans, but their warning went unheeded. And the nation experienced a real beatdown at the hands of the enemies because they didn't listen to God. Many suffered, including Solomon, whose foreign wives turned his heart away after other gods, and he built pagan altars in Jerusalem. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, God warns against wrongful marriage in Scripture. 2 Corinthians six, fourteen: Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Or what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship have light and darkness? I can tell you this, young people. There are a lot of believers you don't want to be bound up with. You better get to know somebody pretty well before you're thinking about marriage. You better get to know their family pretty well before you get a case of the got-to-haves and you get the romance engine, the emotional engines all revved up because by that time, you won't care about the answers to the important questions. If this guy or this girl, if they don't want to answer the questions, you better run for the hills because you need to know a lot about the person to whom you will invest the rest of your life. This is a big thing. And they may be believers, but there are a lot of things to know about believers. Now, what were the criteria of these sons of God in their selection for a wife? Was it evidence of a growing devotion to God in the lives of both partners? I said evidence, not just I'm telling you, but evidence. Could it have been clearly defined goals regarding life purpose? What about freedom from moral impurity, perhaps? Maybe commitment to a godly solution to problems as they arise. No, none of that. It was body chemistry. Unfortunately, the face and the figure, just like it is today. Same thing. Now, the Sethites could easily have been enticed and influenced by the Canaanites because you remember that uh, the Canaanites developed music and musical instruments. And I will assure you in every culture of the world, the overwhelming incidence of sensuous behavior is accompanied by sensuous music. Now you say, well, 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 what is sensuous music? Well, you can go to some of those talk houses in here, but I don't recommend that you do. But it's there. So they would have been able to entice them to have some fun. Is sin fun? For a while. And these were good-looking sinners. We're not just talking about some ugly old hags here. 
according to the testimony of Scripture. So you can see how they would have been influenced. And today, body chemistry is a powerful thing. You can't rub shoulders with the canines without some of it rubbing off on you. I don't care if it's at a party or on the college campus or whatever. Now you say, well, wait a minute, how are we going to witness to these people? Well, I would encourage you to get another guy and talk to the guy that needs to be talked to and invite him to come to the campus outreach meeting or get another girl and talk to the girl that needs to be talked to. I'm not saying that we don't witness to people. I'm saying when you go to the party, you're probably not going to find anybody interested in hearing what you have to say. Oh, you know, y'all shouldn't be touching each other like that. You need to repent and give your life to Jesus. At the party, I don't think they're going to be too interested in that. So we see what's happening back in that day. Why do people get married today? Well, here is an authoritative answer to that. This is uh, Norman Wright, Premarital Counseling, a guidebook for the counselor. He says it's romance. Romance is the reason. Uh, chemistry before ministry, you might say. This guy's going to minister to me the rest of my life. You better check out to see how he's been ministering in the past five years to his mother or to whomever God has placed him with. Well, here's the problem with the romance fallacy. First, now, let me say this. I'm all for romance. Romance is a good thing. But you better be sure it's with the right person at the right time before you get it revved up or it's leading to a bad end. Romance results in such distortions of personality that after marriage, two people can never fulfill the roles they expect of each other. Romance idealizes marriage so that the day-to-day experiences of marriage encountered may indicate, uh, may cause delusionment. Third, the romance complex is so short-sighted that the premarital relationship is conducted almost entirely on the emotional level. Such problems as temperamental or value differences, religious, cultural, health problems are never even considered. Romance develops a kind of false ecstasy implied in courtship a kind of happiness which can never be maintained in the realities of married life. How about when you get sick and you get the flu and you have difficulties? Romance is such an escape from the negative aspects of personality to the extent that their repression obscures the real person. And finally, people engrossed in romance seem to be prohibited from wise planning for the basic needs of the future, even to the extent of failing to discuss the significant problems of early marriage. Now, Norman Wright's not saying don't get married. He's saying go into marriage with your eyes wide open. Find out what you need to know. Get the answers to the questions, even questions that you might be embarrassed or feel awkward to ask. Let your dad ask those questions or your mom or a marriage counselor. Well, these guys weren't uh, getting any counsel. They were just doing what they wanted to do based on outward appearance. The Bible is really true, isn't it? Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Well, what should have been the basis for their choice? Deuteronomy 7, Proverbs 31, 2 Corinthians 6, Revelation 4, 11, 
godly women who bring God glory, honor, and respect, serving Him and rearing godly offspring. We could talk about that a long time, but there's the summary. God looked at all this debauchery and He was sorry that He had made man. It's another anthropomorphism. God is described in terms of human language. God's not sitting there on the throne saying, why did I do that? I made a bad mistake when I created those people. No, He just puts it in terms that we can understand. He was grieved in His heart. I wonder what He's saying about America, what He's thinking about America today. Well, we could ask, what is the root cause of the men's lack of good judgment? And it would be what's going on in the heart, the continual evil thoughts. And so in chapter 6, verse 3, God says, I'm done. That's it. I'm giving you people 120 years to get this thing turned around, and that's it. Bring in the gopher wood, boys. And the rest of you guys, get your high water britches on because it's coming. And we see that it did come. So we'll be talking about the flood in our future lessons. Now, sometimes in dark days, we're kind of like Elijah. Do you remember Mount Carmel? It was a great victory for God, fire coming down out of heaven for God's cause, and all the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. And then Jezebel puts out a contract on Elijah, and he's running for his life up in the wilderness. And Elijah says, I've been working my heart out for God. And the people of Israel have abandoned His covenant. They've destroyed His places of worship. They've murdered the prophets. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And God says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So if you get discouraged and it looks like the work is failing, just remember Enoch and Noah what they must have faced in their day, the ridicule, the harassment that they must have faced. Well, in closing, what about you this morning? Are you experiencing some heavy tribulation in your life? These guys did, but they saw that God was faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. No matter how dark the days, how bad the news, we have that confident expectation of an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven from you. And we're experiencing right now this faith, this new birth into a living hope. Ask for your faith to be shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. One day, the righteous judge is going to set everything straight on this earth. It may not be on Sunday afternoon, but one day it is coming. In the meantime, you need hope. What builds hope? And I want to close with this passage. Here's what builds hope. Excuse me, one more passage. Keep in mind, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. You may feel like you're the last one on your block or the last one in your workplace, but that's okay. God can work through you. Romans chapter 5, here it is. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Did you get that part? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us.